Hello everyone! Uh, welcome back to Lorebeards. It's been a hot minute. Uh, after some wedding stuff and uh, Nurgle's attempt on my life uh, again, uh, <laughs> we are finally back to chat some more about uh, the glories of Warhammer Fantasy as well as roleplay stuff. Uh, I have a wonderful new guest uh, with me this week. If you'd like to go ahead and kind of introduce yourself and tell people what you're about and what you've done and all that stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jude Hornborg. Um, I'm a freelance writer and uh, game developer, works on uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, I started working on the game back in second edition, um, around the same time that Andy and Steve did. Uh, they uh, they ended up doing a lot more work than, than I did. Um, I guess you could say that uh, if they're the A-list writers, you could say I'm a, a B-lister who specializes <laughs> in... Uh, projects that uh, other people don't want to do <laughs> um and and that's uh, you know uh and you know i only say that only half uh half jokingly because uh, you know that is a it's an important role to have some freelancers like that who you know will take on the uh the projects that are going to be kind of a, you know uh, annoying or um really distracting or time intensive for the developers um so that they can focus on you know the the big part of the book so I kind of embraced that. I've kind of embraced that role over the years, and and really try to, you know, take those those you know short but d difficult projects and and really sink my teeth into them and, and try to do something new with them. You know, try to just uh, hit hit them out of the park as whenever possible. So, awesome. and then uh, in my in my uh, as a day job, you know, uh, I that's the other thing. Uh, I you know up until COVID, I I had a full time uh, salaried job. So, you know, I was limited in the amount that I could dedicate to uh, to writing. Um, mind you, I did end up often uh, have, taking it as a second full-time job with all the fan projects plus the mm. official stuff. And it really, there were several years there where I was literally working two full-time jobs, only one of them was paid. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but the last few years with COVID, I've been doing more contract work. So I've had an opportunity to to get a lot more involved with the Cubicle 7 4th edition stuff than I had with previous editions. So that's been great. Well, that's fantastic, man. So uh, for um, what are there any kind of like particular highlights of all the so over the years, the, the, the various jobs that you've had the opportunity to write on and work on? Um, are there any uh, ones that kind of stick out to you as ones that you're particularly proud of or ones that were particularly difficult? Um, things that kind of just jump to mind. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, they, they've all been challenging in their own ways, and uh, I, I, like I said, I, I kind of relish that challenge when I'm when I'm, you know, signing up for a project. Uh, probably the most challenging one, and the one that I still have PTSD from, is the Thousand Thrones campaign. Uh, <laughs> I've heard a lot of things about uh, Thousand for, Thrones. Yeah, for second edition. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, it gets mixed reviews, and you know, it, it, I'll say it's it's a flawed campaign. Uh, but you know, some of the you know some of the most enduring things are flawed, and you know, there, I know a lot of people have made a great meal out of it. Um, Takes some some work from the from the game master, but you know, it covers a lot of territory that. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay hadn't covered before, like, you know, this vast wealth of uh, of undead background that we have, you know, looking at how that all fits into the, the big picture. And, you know, whereas before, you know, you know, you might have an odd vampire here and there. Thousand Thrones has hundreds of vampires. Mm -hmm. wow. Awesome. Uh, and some, so, and 
kind of in more recent works, um, I know you and I have talked a little bit about that you've been really heavily involved uh, with the elves in kind of recent years, especially with the the elves of Laura Lauren. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain uh, about them, and we'll kind of circle back around to the undead in a little bit. Um, so what kind of was the process of you know for so for people not aware, Laura Lauren was is this offshoot group of the Wood Elves um, up in the Northern Empire. But they were kind of uh, lost for a while. You know, they, they kind of went under the radar. And, like, I had presumed that uh, as a reader when I was younger that they just died or something, like Morgar ate them all or something because they kind of just fell into the background. So what was kind of the process of approaching them and then kind of having to come up with all of this uh, newer lore, especially going into Archives of the Empire Volume 1? Like, what was kind of your your, your uh, creative process and like your ideas going into uh, the, the, the new Wood Elves. Yeah, so the uh, Aernir, uh, the Laura Lorne Forest, uh, there really wasn't a lot of material on it in, in previous editions. Uh, you know, there was a paragraph and a couple of paragraphs in first edition, uh, you know, a few paragraphs and uh, Sigmar's heirs for second edition. And it was all very evocative stuff, but um, you know, in order to really play a, a wood elf character from the Lorelorn, uh, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite adequate. So, um, it was Andy Law who had actually asked me, um, to, to work on that, uh, along with Stephen Lewis. I, I have to give Stephen Lewis credit for everything elf related that I've done because, uh, uh, we, uh, we had collaborated together back in, uh, 2010 or so, 2009 on, uh, starting the elf project through Libra Fanatica, which was a, uh, it's going to be a series of fan books. We only finished one of the ones that we had intended, which was Defenders of the Forest, but 144 page or 150 page. Wow. Elf okay. Yeah. That's book. pretty serious. And, you know, that was based on pre eighth edition lore. So, you know, it feels a little out of date when you read it now, but, um, mm. um, we pretty much pulled together every single Wood Elf source reference that was existed and added, you know, that much right, again yeah. in, term, in terms of our own reading between the lines extrapolating from little tidbits here and there and so um so andy was impressed with that so he asked us to to, to do that and um our i guess our brief was you know portray the elves as they existed before you know before the war of the beard before the sundering perhaps even as the the original elves right, right. because that yeah. colony is old it had been there for a long time and um had been cut off from Ulthuan for for a long time, and and cut off from Athelorend to a large extent as well. So, you know, that was a bit of a uh, conundrum because you know, on one hand, you know, these are the original elves or like the originals, but on the other hand, everyone recognized them as as wood elves, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so our idea then was to uh, to divide them up into different uh, castes or, or social classes where. One of the, the the most visible, perhaps, of those classes is the are the forest-born elves, and and they're the ones that are most like your Azrai wood elves. But the Aeonir, uh, unlike the Azrai, didn't form this uh, sp spirit pact with with the Lorelorn Forest, so they don't uh, they don't have the, this same kind of fey aspect in the sense that that Azrai do. They don't uh, they're not spirit bound to the forest. They don't have a natural a, a, affinity to 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 the spirits um but they are still still very much wood elves in the sense you know they they, they live they live in the forests and tree houses and wear you know cloaks and right. bows mm -hmm. and so on. 
So, and then um, the original quote elves were uh, we represented through a different kindred uh, called the Cityborn or or the Fanyur kindred, which are they live in the heart of the forest in this city Torlithanel, which is very much uh, uh, you know a high elven style city that. Uh, was almost conquered after the War of the Beard, or at the very end of the War of the Beard, um, but managed to hold off, uh, hold off the dwarfs, the dwarven mm -hmm. attackers, with the help of a spirit host that was summoned by nefarious magics, which uh, uh, I think yeah, I'll, I'll the, get into uh, later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little later. The um, the uh, I forget the something lords, the um, the great lords. Yeah, yeah. the great lords. Yes. Yeah, the, the Grey Lords are, are these mysterious figures that uh, have come up in the novels a few times, uh, like the Brenner novels and uh, the Bill King novels, and they were they were essentially wizards who had um, who had well, the famous one from the Brenner novels had tried to uh, tried to enslave a, a dragon, right? So, mm, yeah, know, I remember him. Yeah, yeah. So, so they were kicked out of uh, Ulthuan, uh around the time of the Sundering, and they scattered to the winds and. Um, you know, some of them made their way to the Lorelorn, where they carried on their uh, nefarious experiments and you know, dark pacts with various. Yeah, elves who definitely like 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 having some control over things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, we haven't really uh, we haven't really fleshed out the uh, air and air magic much, but um, our idea is that it would be somewhat different from Azrai magic in the sense that, you know, some of these old Greylord traditions might have filtered down through through the ages, even though, even though the Greylords themselves aren't necessarily, you know, active characters there anymore. Right, so... Um, oh, no, keep going, go. Yeah, so anyway, I, I'll just uh, finish the, the... So the third social class or, or caste uh, in, of the ANR are the uh, the newer arrivals. These are, these are elves who arrived after the war of the beard so the forest born the city born right the the high elves they're the original colonists mm. who, who survived and their descendants who live in the heart of the forest and, and you know they can follow high elf careers and they are wood elves technically but culturally they're very close to the original elves and um the uh so the forest born are your wood elves who live kind of in the in the glades and and, and uh outlying areas of the forest and then you have the uh, the Heroith kindred, the younger kindred. These are elves who who uh, migrated to the Lorelorn from other parts of the old world, either because their glades were, had been overrun by beastmen and they needed, you know, they needed another elven, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Like-minded elves, yeah, re to, refugees, yeah, refugees, essentially, yeah. And so they're the lowest, they're the lowest social class among amongst the Aeonir. Awesome. So. Um, one of the things uh, to kind of establish a little bit, just a little bit more uh, groundwork before we start getting into the specifics is elves kind of elves, I think, tend to be one of the least well appreciated by the average kind of Warhammer fan. Uh, there's, you know, it, for, I think for people that tend to casually approach the setting, they will usually encounter like a lot of what I will jokingly refer to as elf hatred, uh, you know, either dwarf fans or people that just like making fun of the elves because they're 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 easy to pick on. Um, so for people that maybe aren't as familiar, uh, with the, the elves of Warhammer fantasy, what would you kind of say is the major draw the major, like, uh, if you were pitching the elves as something for people to really, um, indulge in and come to enjoy, what would kind of be the major facets? What, what draws you to the elves in particular? Would you say? Well, you know, uh, I mean, 
it's funny because you know Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is a game where you know the more seriously you try to play an elf in a party of rat catchers and uh, you know yeah. all the various <laughs> misfits, the more ridiculous they seem. You know, mm. so it's, it's almost like you know. Uh, I guess I would say that you know the the elves represent um, the uh, the outsider, you know, the outsider's perspective, um, and also what what makes and they also kind of typify what makes what can make what can make a party of uh, a Warhammer fantasy roleplay party a group of misfits, right? Mm -hmm. So you know. You have, an, you have a wood elf with you, right? Uh, you, you know, but just by association, the whole party is, is going to be kind of... Yeah, they've become a little weirder. Folks, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the same time, um, you know, they they are mistrusted. Um, uh, people are suspicious of them, but they also respect them, right? Uh, the, you know, the elves are highly respected. I mean, they, they formed the entire Colleges of Magic, you know, through Elven Council. So um, that's not to say everyone trusts the Colleges of Magic, of course. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the Elves are kind of, uh, in the big picture, they're kind of the world police, right? Um, and so I think that that role is something you can kind of take with an Elf and, and take almost this uh, paternalistic or altruistic view where, you know, your, your role is to you know, do what is necessary to, to save the world in ways that humans couldn't possibly even understand, right? And these right. humans are just, yeah. these humans are here to support you in that uh, <laughs> while you go about your elven business. Yeah, that, you got you uh, got to herd the children while uh, making sure work gets done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. Uh, so uh, kind of swinging back around to uh, Larlorn, uh, for people that... Um, are maybe interested in kind of approaching Larlorn elves as far as wanting to role play as them, or just getting to kind of understand their lore as them a bit. Uh, you kind of mentioned earlier that they occupy this kind of interesting niche between uh, the high el traditional high elves uh, from Ulthuan and the the wood elves of Athel Lauren. But for someone that maybe is kind of wanting to look into how do they how do they approach the outside world, where you have like you know the Ulthuan elves tend to be kind of these arrogant world savior world police guys that just kind of show up out of nowhere and they don't really know what's going on locally but they're just here to you know get things done and be like i'm important and y'all are going to fall into line and you know i'll you know i'm here to you know fix some uh maybe some um waystones or whatever we've got that y'all have been breaking around here and then you've got your wood elves who are you know, very violent <laughs> tree huggers of, you know, they're there very much to defend the natural world and they don't really care about what needs to be done in order to do that. And they care very much about the weave and all these other concepts that humans have never heard of. Where would you kind of put Larlorn elves on that, on that spectrum for people that are kind of wanting to um, role play as these characters, but aren't really sure of what opinions or like goals they have um, in the wider world? Well, uh, the thing about Lorelorn elves is because they, you know, they live, they trade, they, you know, they interact uh, much more with um, human society, especially the Nordlanders, um, the than uh, than say the Osride do, right? Um, uh, on a more of an equal level as well, rather than being, you know, these overseers and you know uh, manipulators, they. Um, you know they'll, they'll they'll fight to keep uh to keep the protector of Lorlorn, their heartland safe uh and and free of, of human intervention but aside from that 
you know, they will they will trade, they will uh, they will wander off into human lands, and even take up human uh, human professions and take positions in you know the Graf's court in Middenheim. Um, so, from that perspective, the Aeonir are a little easier to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a lot easier to play than, than an Osrai in an adventuring party because um, uh, they're a lot closer to like the first edition Warhammer roleplay conception of elves, which is basically you know humans with pointy ears uh, <laughs> who like to drink and drink drink and party basically, yeah. uh, and they have these kind of weird meditation idea rituals and don't have to sleep very much. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but and because the because the even the forestborn of the Aeonir aren't spirit bound to the forest, they don't have this weird uh, you know this, this weird fey fey side to them that makes them kind of scary. So you know they can be scary you know if if you're surrounded by a dozen of them you know in the deep in the woods. But mm. they, but they can also integrate with uh, with human culture much more readily than than the Azrai. So I think that. Uh, you know the the I guess the driving motive for for an Aeonir player character could very well could very well be you know explore the wider world. Uh, it could be you know they they're not getting along with the city born. You know they uh, they they want you know they're they're looked down on by the city born in a way that the forest born are, which are the most common player character uh, type for Aeonir, by the way, or the, the the classic wood elf forest born. Right. Mm. The cityborn are, are are much smaller in terms of population, and the heroic actually present uh, an interesting opportunity too, because being kind of the bottom rung of the of the social hierarchy, they um, they find themselves living in like damp caves and, and you know all the places that that they can find to take refuge where no other elf would you know has set up a, a residence and they're looked down upon so it's, it, there's a lot of incentive for them to go out and, and adventure and try to find a better better life out there okay awesome um so we've had a couple of questions kind of coming in from chat and i'll just sort of throw these in as we're going through this um so uh, one question somebody asked is so when it comes to influence for elves um it's always kind of seemed that like with the wood elves you kind of have more of this tolkien aspect of like influence and background Hives and dark elves seem to pull a lot from um uh, michael moorcock's writings is there anything in particular you found yourself turning to when looking for inspiration or ideas when dealing with warhammer fantasy elves uh well you know for the uh, defenders of the forest stuff we you know, we pretty much um, stuck with you know a lot of the Celtic and and influences that were already there. Mm. For uh, for the Lorelorn material uh, for fourth edition, um, you know, I guess there's a little bit of uh, you know Roman influence there. I mean, the the Aeonir basically what they tried to do was form a republic, and um, and it turned out that uh, they just weren't quite progressive enough to to do that. So they ended up re- reverting to a, a monarchy in the end anyway, and and. Mm. You know, now it's kind of a it's kind of a hybrid you know hybrid situation there um where they have you know queen marisith who is actually descendant from uh Morellian, uh descent technically descended from anarian so right. she mm-hmm. so she is um she kind of embodies that time before the phoenix kings existed when there was only an ever queen and and that that kind of harkens back to the you know that our original brief which was what you know Make make this what the elves were before the sundering and the war of the beard, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So, 
so you have that that uh, influence going on, and um, then you know uh, the uh, there's also you know that the, the the idea of the lower lorn elves being potentially more say humanized, right? Um, they then than other wood elves might be they so um and also you know they they also have different aspects of of the pantheon um that you don't necessarily find often like there's you know they're, they're canite there's a you know, there's a canite shrine for instance you know right they have much more of kind of that middle ground i would assume of like being willing yeah. to acknowledge gods that maybe the other elves tend to be much more opinionated on yeah, because you have to keep in mind that the Anir uh, culture was was born out of the War of the Beard. It was born in a time. It was born out of warfare in, in a way, right? And, right. Uh, mm -hmm. they de their social classes are defined by, you know, where they were d during that time when they arrived in relation to to that war, and and you know they were the last holdouts against the dwarves. So they were they were they were desperate. So, uh, would you also say that kind of, uh, would that have like a notable impact when kind of considering these kinds of characters as far as how they feel about the other races compared to traditional elves? Like, do you think they'd have a more antagonistic relationship with the dwarfs than maybe like the high elves hold on to? Like, are they, are, do they, would you say they hold on more to that war of the beard? Um, those, a lot of those hurt, like, uh, um, uh, those uh pains from the war than uh regular elves would oh yeah definitely because uh i mean it was the war of the beard was fought right in their backyard right on their doorsteps and uh and they've had to sit there and watch while the humans you know the humans that their neighbors with formed bonds you know alliances with these dwarves this um, that they were fighting during the during the war and uh you know there were other elven cities besides torlithanel that were leveled by the dwarves that uh you know the ruins are still there there are still people there are still elves alive in lorlorn who were alive in the war of the beard right who remember right. firsthand mm -hmm. and so you know i mean that's part of what makes the um the uh, you know the elves and you know just like undead really different and and challenging also for warhammer roleplay and that you have all this huge body of ancient background that in most cases wouldn't be really relevant to a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay campaign, but when you're dealing with elves, it is because they they you know you have these ancient elves that are that lived through it and are still there to interact with today. So right, um, so kind of I, I guess the last thing I kind of want to ask about um, Larlon for now before kind of hop and we'll probably swing back around to them, but uh, for hopping on some other subjects, is is there anything that you would recommend for someone that is uh, wanting to play a Larlorn elf, regardless of what cast it may be? Uh, is there anything that you would um, uh, say is particularly interesting to explore with them? Like, if uh, do you have any ideas that you would suggest? Like, these are some really cool concepts or some really good um, trials that uh, are would be good to focus on with a Larlorn elf. This is something that's like particularly. Uh, close or important to them and th that separates them from maybe a different elf yeah i mean we you know we didn't really have a lot of space to to do uh we only had 13 pages in archives one for the uh Laura Lorne material so we really had to pick and choose um we had to cut about 2,000 words from the gazetteer and just really make it a, an overview rather than an elaborate more elaborate gazetteer like the halflings and the dwarf ones because uh you know, because we had, so 
so you know and we we didn't really get aside from ghost striders you know we didn't really have a chance to develop uh, any of the careers but um you know considering that you know the forestborn can follow all of the standard wood elf careers and the hot and the cityborn can follow all the standard high elf careers it gives you quite a range of of options as far as mm. as far as careers go um so you know some of the interesting concepts that i think would be fun to explore would be you know playing uh well i think it'd be fun to try try the uh, heroic uh, i haven't had any of those in my games yet but the younger kindred right the out, kind of the more outcast elves right yeah because, that's kind of elves, know, without a, elves without a proper home yeah that's a actually a really interesting uh idea to explore yeah yeah and uh you know in a way they're uh you know they're uh you know they can almost find themselves at odds with you know both the forest born and the, and the city born so it's like the the, the lore lorn becomes almost they, they probably haven't even had access to some of the real really you know the sacred groves and so on or even torlithanel so you could approach uh you know as a heroic you could you uh, you could approach the lore lorn with an adventuring party almost as almost with the same level of knowledge as the rest of the characters right where you're exp uh, investigating you know various intrigues uh in the forest without mm. really having that insider knowledge that one of the other characters might have um uh, i also think you know uh, if you're going if you want to go to the opposite spectrum and play uh, a city-born character you know someone living maybe in the ward of uh storm on on, on in the western Lorelorn, which is um on the coast right on the Manansport sea so you know the elves don't really have a navy per se they might have a few hawk ships but the tides uh come and go so you know they don't have a deep water port so they might right. have a few hawk ships they can launch when the tides are high but for the most part you know they um you know they they are are landlocked you know they you know they might have a few elven boats that kind of patrol the coasts here and there but uh so you know living on that on that on that uh west coast of the laura lauren you'd have the occasional dark elf trader coming in right and mm -hmm. uh, and how do, how do they interact with them because you know we know that the dark elves have made overtures and, and vice versa yeah to, they to definitely would elf. they definitely would love some other other allies where they can get them yeah yeah and you know the uh like the cult of cain for instance uh they there, there are some rare herbs that they come to laura lauren to collect under you know undercover of course they're disguised oh, they don't yeah. they don't come there as, as dark yeah, elves you got some of that good stuff we can have yeah yeah <laughs> And then um, also you could explore on that coast uh, their relationship with the Marienburg elves, right? The, the sea yeah, elves, the sea elves. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think either of those would be, provide some really interesting uh, opportunities that are different from your standard wood elf experience. Mm. Uh, we did have one other question come in uh, about just the, for the Larlorn area. Did uh, someone ask? Do they have access to the world roots? Um, in y'all's opinion, the that kind of mystical gateway system that the the true Azrai used to like travel from like massive distances from forest to forest and kind of just appear places. Yeah, uh, yeah, they definitely would have access to it. Uh, the question is whether they have the magic that's necessary to travel through it. You know, like I was mm. saying, you know, they've been cut off from Othwan and Athalorin. Um, for the most part, you know, uh, we had some ideas of how, you know, there there might be ties with Athalorin, like through Scarlock's Warband, for instance. Oh, yeah. There is actually one of the characters we put there was Kaya Storm, which is, which is one of Scarlock's... Um, 
company, right? One of, mm. and she, so she is the, actually the warden of Storm. And so our idea was that, yeah, Scarlock is from Athaloran, but, you know, especially in the old fourth edition lore, he was uh, portrayed more as a uh, kind of a champion of all the woodland realms. And so we, we wanted to try to develop that a bit. And, uh, and so the idea being that, you know, um, you know, if the woodland realm is threatened, Scarlock gets the band back together. You know, come on, Kaya, come on, Glamdring, let's, yep. let's, you know, let's go save this woodland realm over here. And um, so, um, so that's one potential link there. And I think, you know, you'd have to have a, the world roots to make that feasible for Scarlock to jump around the world roots and gather up his, his band. Um, and, but, you know, how much the, the Aeonir have access to the world roots is, you know, it's another question because... You know, back in sixth edition, what else? You know, there's the lore of Athaloran, which is right. basically mm -hmm. what they used to travel. You know, to to do that, right? Yeah, make the like all the trees and woods do what they'd like, and yeah, good old tree singing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not really made clear now. And you know, in the eighth edition, you know, uh, we actually said it was the uh, pass uh, pass between worlds spell, right? That the, in in the Lustria book, we said that that's what you use to traverse the mm. world roots as as an overcasting option right so you know that's that's high magic right which do, does laura lauren have that maybe a couple of wizards do but it's certainly not something that they would have been able to maintain as a as a yeah as a tradition they're, 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 they're kind of lacking access to a lot of those super high um high or dark uh um powers it sounds like you know they're a little more kind of stuck in the middle yeah, because, you know, it was it was really Ariel that preserved a lot of that. You know, she was the one who, you know, gathered the secrets of dark weaving from Grand, you know, back in the mm. whatever season it was and and uh, you know, preserving, you know, the high weaver tradition, etc. So Queen Marisith is young and she's, you know, she's a descendant of 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 the you know, the, the line, but um you know, whether she you know, she, whether she has that kind of magic or whether the elves who who did have that kind of magic are are able and willing to pass it on to to other mages, that's something that hopefully we can explore in the future. Uh, you know, yeah, that'd be great. Other archives or whatever, because uh, uh, you know, it feels like that's kind of the missing element right there for, for the lore. Yeah, I would definitely Just, love love to see a lot more. Um, but they're definitely connected to the world roots that, you know, it's no doubt about that because, you know, we've had stories about Ariel, uh, you know, just popping up, you know, in the Lorelorn, uh, or forest of shadows close enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure that's kind of a, Oh, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. when you have a demigod show up out of nowhere. Um, yeah. awesome. So, uh, kind of using, uh, we were kind of talking about the ocean and, um, uh, ports and stuff like that earlier. So in the recent Lustria book, you, uh, pinned a lot of the stuff relating to the new colonies. Uh, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, so, uh, that turned, I was really fascinated by that section because, uh, it, it was a very, um, interesting thing that has always kind of, I think, sat in the back of a lot of people's minds as far as like the, the fortress of dawn and the fortress of dusk and all of these like large, um, castles or forts that are just very isolated. You know, they're very important to the high elves. They're very important staging grounds and kind of help them maintain that world police idea, despite the fact they're kind of a fading race. Um, were there any kind of, uh, really, uh, poignant or, uh, focused ideas you wanted to hit on when you were kind of handed, 
um, approaching these kind of these these very important but very very almost never touched upon uh, places as far as the the high elves go. Yeah, and you know, again, I have to give credit to Stephen Lewis. You know, he he and I, I wrote most of it, but you know, he and I, you know, he, he and I have been sharing ideas on elves for years now, and mm. so he, you know, a lot of the ideas are were, were his as well. So, um, the um, I guess you know the big thing was that you know when we were thinking of doing a high elf book for uh, for our elf project, we we realized that we're not going to do an Ulth one gazetteer because it's just not it's not really feasible as a as a an adventuring location for a party. So yeah. our our idea was to uh, instead you know make that a, like a smaller section on Ulth one you know for people who want to go there, uh, you know maybe uh, focus on Lothurn or or whatever, but. The main, uh, you know, the main focus would be like a world atlas with all yeah. of this uh, high elf sites of importance marked, right? And um, and so that gives your high elf adventurer all these, you know, kind of uh, hidden or secret, secret mission spots that, that they want to go to that the rest of the party may not might not even know about. And so, in the Citadel of Dusk was, uh, you know, for Lustria it was a, it was a challenge because it's you know it's the, probably the the most remote backwater location right right and so unless unless you have a high elf character in, in your party why why would you go there and uh so a lot of the plot hooks that we came up with were um you know based around uh either you know high elf intrigues um or um you know trading related things or you know if you ended up here these are the kinds of situations you could get sucked into just but just because you're you know, you're yeah, there. Yeah, just having to bump into them. Yeah, mm. because you know, I mean, the Citadel of Dusk itself, it's uh, it's not really an adventure location per se. It's uh, you know, first of all, you know, if you're not in, if you're not a, if you're not a high elf, you're you're not welcome there. Mm. Uh, second of all, it's you know, it's way at the, you know, it's w way out of out in the middle of nowhere. It's pretty close to the Chaos Waste, so you know, Southern Chaos Waste. So why would anyone? want to go yeah, there it's and kind of that they, last bastion of civilization before just awful <laughs> awful <yeah>. stuff <laughs> yeah exactly and and it's invisible and that was you know that, that was a funny thing it's like uh because you know ever since fourth it's an old location it's been there on you know since since the very beginning of warhammer fantasy battles right the very mm -hmm. oldest maps of lustria always have the Citadel of dusk and the vampire coast right and people are always like what is what are what's up with these locations right but um, there has only ever been what one like one paragraph on the Citadel of Dusk that's been, just been recycled with you know maybe a minor edit here and there from one army book to the next after, since mm -hmm. fourth edition. Um, you know little bits that were added to that in, in the Lizardmen books um, as well, uh, but you know still not a lot. Uh, and then and then finally in in uh, heraldry and uniforms of the High Elves. Oh, by the way, it's invisible. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I explains so, how it's been doing so well despite being yeah, exactly. out in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, so we decided to just run with that and, and you know make it this like uh, you know if the high elves are, are like the world police, this is kind of like their you know their dirty secret, right? This is you know where where all the you know the, the shady stuff goes on and yeah, you know, because far, far it, from it, home it, and hard to find, so might as well right. work on some things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, it's very easy for high elves to just come across as being shiny magical elves that, you know, that, you know, people just find kind of yeah. don't don't fit really into the Warhammer fantasy aesthetic. And so, you know, uh, 
Citadel of Dusk, you know, gave us an opportunity to, you know, to do something uh, maybe a little darker with that, but still keeping it very much, you know, part of this crumbling, you know, this crumbling empire desperately trying to hold on. Um, you know, we tried to thread in some of the uh, Scytheri gods, which, you know, have only come up in the last two editions of the battle game. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of people aren't even familiar with them. So, uh, you know, dropping in references to those without a lot of context is, you know, it poses some challenges. But, um, uh, yeah, that was that was basically our idea is, uh, is that, you know, this is... Um, this is uh, it's almost like you know you end up in deep space nine by accident, right? Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. you're not sure whether they're, you're dealing with Vulcans or Romulans, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, for for anyone that because uh, one of the things I would have loved to see, and hopefully Cubicle Seven will do this at some point, uh, would be like uh, like a high elf something you kind of mentioned that I would love to see in the future one day from C Seven would be like a little bit of a high elf expansion of like if you want to play a high elf but you're coming from one of these places like here are some maybe different talents or different um skills you would have to represent you know if you're coming from the fortress of dawn and you leave to join an adventuring party or the citadel of dusk which has this more sinister lean um or these various kingdoms of Volthuan. if somebody was uh picked up the lustria book and decides to join an adventuring party do you have any like kind of recommendations or ideas of what they should maybe consider leaning into to separate their high elf from being like a traditional Ulthwani elf or a marienburg sea elf uh, if they're from, say, the Citadel of Dusk or the the Fortress of Dawn, um, do you kind of have any ideas in your head of like recommendations for those players of how they might differentiate themselves a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if you're if you want to play an elf that's from those colonies, uh, merchant is going to be a big career, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, soldier, um, you know, make yourself a sea guard or a spearman or whatever. You know, they, they're they're always. You know, there are always soldiers being posted, and you're probably rotating duties as well. So it gives you lots of excuses to be traveling. Um, uh, you know, and just, uh, introduced a new mage type, if I recall correctly, that handles like the storms, the the storm weavers to deal with the yeah, the storm weavers. The, that's actually uh, one of the one of the only elven quote you know priest careers that have actually gotten fantasy game stats, fantasy battle stats from the Storm of Chaos book for sixth edition right mm -hmm. they were in the um the uh the sea patrol list yeah I uh, Iceland's sea patrol yeah yeah that's it yeah so and they had a couple of unique spells that weren't part of any color lore uh i don't know if you recall there were there were mm -hmm. two spells one of which was basically disguising an enemy unit uh hiding them in, in writhing mists and another one which involved uh summoning a siren that could distract enemies and you know so these are um we call them miracles of, of mathlan um but that's just for lack of uh you know a better word if, if you know it's they're really meant to be used by npcs uh in in the lustria book mm. the, the, sorry the, the two miracles that we provided which were not those they were two different ones that fit the theme of the lustria material, right, yeah. right? Mm. making a ship invisible and uh water breathing i think right Yes, so, the water breathing opens up some really interesting ideas for people that want to explore those. But because uh, good old fishman, I love my fishman. Uh <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we thought you know Mathlan makes the most sense, and um, you know how those would be presented as uh, you know in a playable lore of Mathlan. Um, you know, I have I have lots of ideas for that. You know, um, 
some kind of sacrifice, etc. They would be different from, they would work differently from the way human miracles work, but, you know, for the purpose of Lustria, just treat them as miracles because it's NPCs that are that are using them, right? Mm. It's just, the effects are more important to the, uh, spell effects are more important to the game than the mechanics of casting and so on. Right. Awesome. Um, so, uh, kind of uh, bridging now from uh uh, elves heading over to uh, something that's kind of similar to elves in a lot of ways. Let's let's talk a little bit about the undead and uh, something we can kind of use as a branching point. Um, so w- one of the things that showed up in the book uh, that was very, very interesting and actually sparked a lot of very interesting discussions. Um, like I had a really awesome chat with uh, Steve D about it in the last episode of Lord Beards we did was there's a, there's a plot hook that talks about uh, vampire elves. Um, which is like, it's kind of an idea that's always floated around fantasy. And whenever people uh, approach the setting, they're always like, why? Like, what is the deal with like, I understand there are vampires and, but there's only human vampires. You know, there's that one little offhand mention of a vampire halfling, I think back in like sixth or seventh edition vampire counts book, who's never talked about ever again. Um, And, um, but a lot of people ask about like vampire elves or vampire dwarves. um, And this is kind of the first time we've seen, um, anyone try to explore the idea of a vampire elf? Um, so kind of, uh, kind of walk us through your, your thoughts on that subject, if you wouldn't mind, and just kind of talk about like, do you have any ideas of what that would look like or like what, what would be kind of all the, the mechanics or ideas behind that? Yeah, sure. I should say uh, first off that um, that the exact wording of that plot hook, I think, is being changed. So it's not going to be referred to as a as a uh, vampire captain. They're going to change it to a a wretched thrall. I think is the new. So that opens up a little bit more room for interpretation. Mm. You know, you could either have it be a vampire thrall, or you could have it be a blood thrall. Say that Harkon is draining to uh, you know for the magical blood or something. They 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 do have some supercharged blood. Those elves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the idea was that, um, you know, like I was saying before, the um, uh, the, uh, the the hooks for Citadel of Dusk uh, were, you know, required a lot of thought, you know, you know, going there for uh, imaginary money, you know, like oftentimes, you know, oh, you know, you, you know, make 50 gold crowns. That's not enough to, to get some a party to sail like halfway across the world. So they had to yeah, be you're gonna be at sea for like months. That, would, yeah. that the players, not the characters, the players would say, Oh wow, okay, that's different. So, you know, that was part of it. Um and the other part of it was, you know, that uh, Luther Harkon, he's been fighting elves for sixteen hundred years. There's no other vampire in, in the Warhammer world that's been fight that's fought elves as much as he has. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it if you're going to explore the idea of a vampire elf, th- that's the place to do it, right? And really, I mean, you know, it's such a it's a small it's a small plot hook, but really, it was just here's your permission to to explore this idea if you want to. It's because you know people have often have kind of very compartmentalized ideas of how the how the various factions work because the battle game by necessity can't have stats. For right? Vampire, it, it, yeah, it tries to elves, like- halflings. Here, this is your high elf army book box. This is your dark elf army book box. You know, yeah, yeah. And so I see these non-human uh, vampires that are, ref, you know, hinted at or alluded to as being, you know, the kind of one percent exception that illustrates the rule. So mm-hmm. you know, the idea of a um, of a a weird vampire, you know, what be it an ogre or, or whatever, dwarf or elf, uh, is you know something that you use as a as a as a almost like a uh, 
a foil to understand vampires or to understand elves. Yeah. More clearly, right? So I'll, let me just ask you, when you read that, like uh, before I get into my more metaphysical explanation, what were your ideas that first popped to your mind about how, how you would use <laughs> So, uh, uh, the, well, the first idea was like, what? Because I, it just, it, it's one of those things that I just had never really seen. Like it had never even occurred to me, really. Um, I, I'd always kind of worked under this assumption that it was kind of like a human-only type curse, just because it, um, the, like there were always kind of some fleeing mentions in some of the other books. Like I think I recall back in second editions, Night Dark Masters, there being a mention where it's like, oh, elves just have no interest in vampirism because they're so long lived already that they kind of look at it of like, why would I want to deal with this parasit of you know parasitism that's such a human you know problem to have and the dwarves are like oh that's magic Blah. um but once i actually really had time to kind of sit down and think about it um i think for me um oh something that steve d said that i really really liked the idea of was this concept of dark magic you know by its nature comes at a price like you know it's a very you know it's often referred to as blood magic because a lot of people tend to um, uh, in the Black Library novels, whenever they have dark elves, they usually are like sacrificing people or killing people to use their life essence to fuel it, because it's such a uh, by how destructive it is, um, you know, there it has has a price. You know, the vampires though have this very unique relationship with dark magic where they kind of feed off of it. You know, they're they live off of it, so they kind of are able to skirt around a lot of the dangers that come with dark magic. Uh, by just being so innately interwoven with it. So for me, um, it kind of posited this really interesting idea of what if you had a dark elf who, or an elf um, who looked at dark magic's potential of like it is in some ways the most powerful lore from a destructive or offensive cap uh, capability. But they said, how can I master this lore without needing sacrifice, without needing... Um, legions of slaves or anything how can i take this lore to its absolute zenith and really get control over it which to me really brought back a lot of the ideas um from uh, the lore of like marathi or malekith trying to control chaos trying to control these darker forces that really can't be controlled if if you like look at it from like a godlike perspective but they manage and i think for me the idea of an elf who really takes that to an extreme where they're willing to bind themselves to it, um, willing to bind themselves to dark magic in such an extent that they end up becoming kind of a, kind of like an almost a vortex of dark magic, um, which would functionally turn them into a vampire. Um, now, I don't think they would necessarily be like the the pointy teeth feeding on blood. A lot of the typical, you know, Dracula tropes. I think it would be a very different expression of vampirism. Um, but the more I've thought about it, the more I think it could make for a fascinating villain um, or, or, or in some ways, even maybe like a really a tragic one. Um, if it's not necessarily a dark elf, like it could be a character who is trying to find a way to control chaos or defeat chaos in a very different way that, of course, would inevitably spiral out of control. Or it could be a traditional dark elf who's just like, honestly, if an elf could pull it off, they'd probably be terrifyingly powerful. Um, but I, I would I would love to hear your own thoughts about how you would want to explore the idea if you had the ability. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously there have to be reasons why the world isn't overrun with vampire elves, right? Why mm. this is why this is a one percent exception, right? And for me, that's because uh, it would be a miserable existence for them for some reason. And so I'll, I'll get into that a little bit. Um, 
but the uh, you know I guess the the main motive behind this one elf, this one character, this is Escapee, right? From uh, is that his soul was damned to to chaos, right? So, Mm. uh, and uh, the alternative, right, which is to go to Aerith Kyle, is not pleasant either, right? And yeah, so it's a pretty bad it's a pretty bad deal. (laughs) Yeah. So once an elf, once you're in that situation, what do you do as an elf, right? So the uh, you know the idea of binding your soul to the mortal realm is something that all all elves uh, all elven cultures they have that somewhere in, you know I say either binding it to the, the ley lines as a high elf or binding it binding yourself into tree kin or other forest uh, other you know other forest entities as a wood elf. So the idea of you know trying to keep your soul bound to the to the material realm is not foreign to elves, right? No, it's very um, baked in. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's very similar to the way that that vampires they they they're severing their connection to the ether. You know, they're 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 still very much uh, magical creatures. It's just they're not drawing magic from the ether like the same way that elves do through their through their shadow self. Mm-hmm. Vampires are their, their souls are completely bound to the material realm, so they're drawing in earthbound magic and magic from the winds that are blowing across the world, and they're compressing that into dar and, and wielding that as dar, right? Um, so, if we go back to you know the the elixir of life, which uh, uh, and Nagash first had created, you know, based on Druki magic, Druki blood magic, mm. and then it was uh, changed. You know, in the previous in the in the previous lore, it was improved by Wasoran and Ferata uh, for the for the vampire elixir, but in the in in the in the newer lore, it's now an inferior version. But either way, that's it's kind of irrelevant. It, Ultimately, the second elixir basically turns people into elves with fangs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. functionally, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're looking, if, especially if you're looking at the, a lot of the newer artwork where all the vampires seem to have pointy ears and you know, yeah, elf like. Yeah, one would be forgiven for mistaking vampires for. Uh, there, there are a lot of. I was actually going to bring that up later, but there are a lot of strong parallels in fantasy between the elves and vampires as far as like powers and abilities and a lot of those other things yeah heightened senses heightened agility all of that all that stuff that nagash did you know and you know the original that just didn't didn't get that they that the second elixir did get now you know did they put elf blood in the second elixir probably not but um but if you look at blood magic uh, in general they you know in, including the blood magic that nagash would have learned from the Druki, uh, it's ancient, right? It, it it goes back to the time of the elf when the elven gods walked walked the world, and the cauldrons of blood, right? Are are, are mm-hmm. they, yep. they they pre, they predate history, and so if you know if if there's this, uh, and then the Naga queens in, in in Kuresh, right? Their their magic, their blood magic is also similarly ancient. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two traditions of blood magic, of which Nagash was learning the the Druki tradition. And um, so, you know, uh, even if you know, elven blood wasn't used in the elixir, maybe this elixir in some way is channeling, uh, is almost turning uh, turning humans into some kind of uh, creature in, in the image of, of Cain, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and it's undeniable. I mean, there is that direct correlation or connection of elf to the start of the undead of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the dark elves were very explicitly involved in that whole cross uh, process. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, the, the idea that, you know, an elf couldn't become a vampire, it does, you know, it, it doesn't, 
it, it doesn't really, it's not convincing that an elf couldn't physically, I, I know that, you know, eighth edition is, you know, uh, you know, has, has a, uh, has a little statement in vamp, the vampire count books, you know, that all vampires were once human, you know, who had, a, but to me, that's not saying that other species can't become vampires. It's, that's more about, they were once human. In other words, they're not a distinct race. They were, they were transformed by, mm. you know, receiving the blood kiss, right? So, so if um, so, if we move on then to you know why an elf would want to, we we've discussed that already. In terms yeah, I think of, I, you know, I think I think no, I think you've got a super strong point there of the whole concept of the the you know with the elves dying and I think it's called the matter of the soul in the elf yeah. army books where it's like high elves you know go into the the waystones or the ley line type things very reminiscent of kind of the eldari soul stones from 40k or you know the wood elves go into trekin and then the dark elves literally just wing it <laughs> which is yeah. kind of wild but whatever um i know i think i think so, that's a super strong basis for that idea so as far as what they would what they would look like uh you know elves it's um you know I guess consider a couple of things that, you know, Luther Harkon, he's a bit different for a vampire, right? He's cut off from the ether. He still has, you know, like we said that, you know, and he's not just cut off from the ether for being a vampire. He's also cut off from the winds of magic, right? So he doesn't have that dar vortex that other vampires do. His body is broken in a way, right? Mm. So, so, uh, having an elf, having an elf vampire thrall, could that somehow help him, you know, to reconnect with with the winds of magic, almost like some kind of magical antenna? Antenna, because we know that, you know, when when vampires create, vampires can only create a limited number of thralls because every one is soul soul bound to that vampire and and weakens them a little bit more. So they, vampires have to be very selective about uh, who, how many thralls they they they, make, they create. How many how many vampires they create? They sire, uh, and uh, and what kinds of vampires? And you know, elves are notorious for having very strong souls, right? They uh, mm. stubborn soul. Yeah, so Slash, you know, that's why Slash loves them so much. <laughs> that's right. So you know, having an el siring an elven vampire, it might it might be an extra burden on on Harkon compared to a to to a human vampire, but. You know, if this elf can serve as some kind of siphon for magic that he can tap into, maybe it's worth it, right? Yeah. And well, then I I could absolutely see that being an experiment for Harkon as well. You know, I could see most vampires looking at that being like, no, it's ridiculous. But Harkon's like, a, I'm desperate. B, I'm insane. So at least one of my personalities thinks this is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would see. You know, I mean the. Uh, I would see the the state of vampirism as being very totally miserable for an elf because, uh, in, in a way, it's you know, experiencing you know the pleasures of life and all of that you know all those things that that sustain the elven soul uh, uh, you know and and keep it from sinking into ennui. It, there's a vampire; they they lose that right. So, mm -hmm. um, um, I think that you know. Uh, this this uh, elven thrall or, or vampire. By the way, if I were to use it in, in a game, I, I would still have Lord Finrian call it a vampire captain, even if it's if, if the reality turns out to be something completely different mm. when the players you know when the players encounter it. Um, well, but, it, it, yeah, it makes for the hell of a plot hook as far as like like oh a vampire, what the hell is that going to be like? Um, yeah. Like yeah, that would there's no doubt that would draw in a party. 
And then, you know, the question is, what do you do with this vampire? Do you kill it? Do you, uh, do you try to rehabilitate it somehow? Uh, um, you know, what, what could possibly bring, bring salvation at this point? Yeah. So, so. uh, if for anyone that wanted to kind of like go further with exploring that, do you have any idea or thoughts, um, as to like, what kind of, like, would it develop? What, what what do you think would make a vampire elf different from like just a regular elf as far as like powers and abilities would go? Because like we know what vampirism does to a human, but what what kind of effects do you think it would have on an elf? Um, well, first of all, uh, I, I think that it would uh, result in insanity probably very quickly. And I think the elf would probably start degenerating in almost like a Strigoi type way mm -hmm. much faster than, than other vampires do. Um, and, uh, the, uh, I don't think it would really gain that many power. I mean, you know, if someone wanted to, to turn this into like a super elfy munchkin vampire, you know, that's, that's the <laughs> prerogative. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to stop anyone from, and that could actually be a really cool way of playing it too. Right. But, um, uh, I'd be more inclined to say that, uh, you know, this, this vampire is miserable and is a tool, a tool of Harakon. So, so taking a, more, possibly, a much more of a, like even, a tragic angle. Yeah, and maybe even has had some, you know, some chop work done on it at the, you know, because we, you know, from the Lustry book that Harkon has some, you know, necroark tendencies, you know, to maybe do a little bit of... Uh, yeah. Well, hey, anybody that's seen the Vampire Coast roster in Total War, there are some interesting put-together creatures running around <laughs> in, his, yeah. in his legions. No, that's yeah. and that that's that's such a great idea. Like and um you know a lot of what you said sets up so well for like if somebody wanted to do a Vampire Coast campaign. Uh I love the idea of thinking almost having this build up of a vampire elf, hearing rumors about a vampire elf and you have a party almost trying to envision this Machiavellian terror, like a new Malekith or something. But then when they finally get there, realize that it's Harkin's predations have created like a horrible horrible just sad thing um that's not so much a threat as it is like a moral conundrum of what do you do um like there's there's no like that's that's such a good warhammer fantasy scenario of there is no right answer and there's no great answer either like there's no happy ending it just kind of sucks <laughs> you gotta figure out what to do with that yeah oh and i should also mention that you know i mean it, it is just uh you know it's, it's just a small plot hook at the end uh of the you know lord finrian section and Originally, I had wanted to ex expand those both of those uh, Asura plot hooks into full paragraphs. It just we, I was already over word count. Yeah, you only got. Some you know, I thought about it, and I thought, okay, if I add a couple more sentences to this, is that really improving it, or is it just kind of railroading people into a specific interpretation? I mean, my aim was to just give you the permission as a GM to use that concept, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to leave it uh, a little vague here and, and let people use it the way that they, they think it would fit best. But, you know, ultimately the topic really deserves uh, some proper coverage, maybe in a necromancy source book or something yeah, you know, well, down the road. Yeah, and I, I, I've always found that um, necromancy in particular, you know, probably the number one question I hear that I, I definitely agree with and I don't ever have really an easy answer for because Warhammer never really addressed it, is that, sure, like, let's, let's say vampire elves aren't a thing. Like, that's, okay, that's whatever. But even with that idea, it's a little weird to accept sometimes that there would not be elf necromancers. There would not be elves that are like, because necromancy is so powerful, being able to just raise legions of corpses. 
um, that it's it's always been, I think, very hard for a lot of people to accept that there would not be an elf who's kind of like, eh, like, sure, it's maybe, you know, this, this human creation form of magic, granted, but, like, it's so strong of being able to just create an army out of nothing um of uh, that i've it, it, i do agree very much that it's always been very strange to the idea that there's no elf out there who's willing to turn to necromancy um as far as creating an army or resurrecting a like zombie dragons are very powerful creatures um uh and stuff like that of uh so i i definitely think there's a lot there to explore that would be great to see in a necromancy focused uh supplement or a pdf or what have you yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and there are so many examples in Warhammer of, you know, quote, good necromancy, you know, the, the slam with their mummified, uh, you know, mage priests and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the tomb kings, right? They're, you know, neutral or sometimes even good, you know, undead. And, uh, you know, even Bretonian, uh, you know, Bretonian reliquary, you know, that's, that's a weird form of yeah. necromancy. Too, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, for sure. I, th I think they're, uh, you know, especially some of the older elven cultures before they figured out how to bind their souls to, uh, you know, the ley lines or whatever. I mean, we know that there are, you know, references in the lore to elven tombs and, uh, uh, et cetera, in, is from some of the older colonies. Um, and, uh, it's, I think it's only recently that they, uh, that they started specifying the elves prefer destroying the body at death. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so yeah well, and, i mean Warhammer, like warmer's full of so many stories that like it's sure it's not necromancy in the sense there's not a necromancer involved but like i don't know how many books i could shake a stick at where you have like elven or dwarven spirits hanging around of the places they were buried or places that were important to them i mean i mean totally, you know, yeah yeah in the elf book like one of the phoenix kings literally just floats around the tower of hoeth all the time um like he's just there and he randomly bumps into students and is like oh yeah you can find that book like <laughs> over there on section a and go down here um so like it's not at all like necromancy is kind of built in the dead do not rest easy in warhammer fantasy very much so yeah like but again it's one of those things that uh you know um, and steve and uh andy have both referred to this it's like you know you don't you don't use these as you know staples of the game because then they lose the point the, mm. the whole point is to use these as the one percent exception that helps illustrate and understand the rule uh, you know, it's always been, as far as I can remember, it's always been in the writer's guidelines, you know, you, 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 you don't close doors, you don't, uh, you don't say never, you say rarely, you don't say always, you say usually, right? Because mm. GW doesn't want to, to do that. They don't want, they don't want to, they, they don't want to say, you know, your story is impossible in Warhammer, right? Yeah, I've heard a even, lot about even, that even, kind of open door philosophy. You just leave, leave it yeah, cracked yeah. a little. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, speaking of vampires kind of focusing on them specifically. So one thing I always got to ask, um, what's, what's your favorite bloodline of the, of the, of the seven though? Well, I guess the uh, five, but now, I guess in recent times we're starting to kind of expand to the other two, but if you had to pick a favorite, who do you, who do you go with? Uh, I like the Lamians personally. Yeah. All right. What, what, I like the, what's your reason for I picking like the, the I like the Strigoi too, but I, I like them better before they made them more bestial and, and, uh, evil you know i like them when they were more like a chaotic neutral almost bloodline but yeah lamians are my favorite because you know they're the easiest to fit into warhammer role play um you know because they're there in the big cities and they're you know mm. um they're they're social vampires they um they're you know they're seductive they're uh very clever and, and devious and uh they um 
you know, they, they have these, uh, these, these bigger plans that, uh, you know, that plans within plans. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just great fodder for, for a role-playing game. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing I've always... Lamians is one of those ones that I think if people initially hear about it, they can kind of be like, eh. But, like, if you really read a lot of the Black Library look, books, a Lamian is always a treat because it's not necessarily a villain. You know, Von Karstein's um, are a lot of fun, but they do they tend to be very mustache twirling um, or, like, take over the world types. Lamians tend to be so much more involved, and they can often be heroes if um, in, in many cases. Um, granted their reasons for being heroic might not necessarily be very heroic, but, um, I like, there are a few people who I, or a few of the undead who I think tend to come out as heavily against chaos, for instance, like if you're, uh, I think for people that are exploring like, um, unconventional allies, Lamians are very near the top of the list, uh, of being like, if, whether you're dealing with Skaven or you're dealing with zinch or chaos and all this stuff lamians are the one of the few that can really go toe-to-toe with them um in a lot of ways um and be a dangerous but notable ally which is so interesting yeah i mean because they're they're deadly fighters too right if it comes down to it uh because i mean that's you know it's obviously not their first uh their first choice of of tactic because they risk exposing them their 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 position and in, in the city you know wherever they are uh, when they show their powers but um uh you know but in thousand thrones there's there's one of the one of the patrons you know, there's a whole list of different patrons one of them is i don't hope this isn't too big a spoiler a lamian vampire and the players don't even don't even realize that they're that they're following a lamian vampire mm. because right so so they, they they can work really well as as patrons that kind of send the party off into a difficult situation, uh, you know, and possibly, you know, ser- serving Neferata in some way, yeah. probably serving yeah. in some way. Which is which is great. I mean, um, just thinking like Black Library books, like the 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 Bruner series has an excellent book, or uh, I can't remember if it's a full book or sh- I think it's a short story where Bruner is working for a Lamy and he doesn't even know it until near the end of the story. Um, yeah. when, it, you know, when you get to see her literally fight a tomb King, which shows how scary she is, but also shows how terrifying a tomb King is. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, they, you know, that, that's something, uh, I don't know if we've, uh, had that yet for, for in fourth edition is a vampire patron. Um, that's something I really hope we get sooner rather than later. Um, uh, cause they, they, we've had a lot of really interesting patrons, especially the illustrious book has brought up some really interesting patrons. Um, but, uh, I, I do hope we don't have to wait too long before we can get some vampire patrons. Cause they're, they make for such fascinating characters to interact with. Yeah. There hasn't been much vampire stuff for four E really yet. Has there, uh, you know, two E ended up doing a ton on vampires. So maybe the thinking there is that, you know, yeah. And great. Yeah. Some other two E is very easy to adapt over. Um, yeah. um, so, uh, kind of, uh, what you spoke about earlier with the Strigoi, um, when, when you kind of talk about like, um, the older ones, um, for anyone that's kind of wanting to maybe explore some different ideas with the Strigoi, um, like I, when, when you say kind of the less bestial ones, like for me, it makes me think of, um, um, what Gashnag, the black, the black prince. Um, like I love his character in that, you know, he's a border prince who a lot of people don't even realize is a vampire, even though he's hideous, like he's a big monster, but he actually like cares a lot for his people and he protects them from ogres and bandits and stuff. He and he has a lot of that 
traditional Shorin ideology of he only feeds on criminals. He only, you know, he doesn't feed on the innocent. He allows them to do their thing. Um, I also love his whole thing where he like pays bards to sing songs about how he like has a heart of gold and stuff. Cause he's trying to attract a wife because <laughs> he doesn't want to go out there looking. Um, could you, could you kind of, uh, expand a little bit on, on your ideas about the Strigoi and like what really draws you to that other interpretation of them? Not just the, you know, the, the nightmarish ghoul king, but the, the other side of that coin. Yeah, well, I mean, they're the ultimate underdogs, you know, in the vampire blood, among the vampire bloodlines. You know, all the other bloodlines have hunted them, and uh, you know, the uh, some of the newer lore uh, kind of portrays Ashuran as being maybe less noble than than he was back in what, the six CE days. Uh, mm. But um, the, you know, the the vampires themselves, right? They, uh, you know, whether or not they have they hold, still hold on to his ideals of you know feeding only from, you know, criminals and so on. Whether that's why they ended up, you know, in as, as uh, say, pariahs, you know, drinking animal blood, you know, that caused them to generate, degenerate or not, it's kind of secondary. The, the, the point is that they have, um, you know, a, a human culture, or they did anyway. I, I, there hasn't been much about the Stragani, right? The, uh, yeah, the, they, the Stragani, they, they, they definitely kind uh, of solely quietly kind of swept under the rug a little bit yeah they're still around but definitely not as much as they used to be yeah and we did a lot in thousand thrones especially in the thousand thrones expansions uh we did a lot with the stragani and the strigoi they were kind of almost like the through story for the for the whole campaign because there was a stragani caravan following along this crusade that the the party was was investigating Mm. and interested in and um so there were a few different uh strigoi vampires there um and uh yeah the idea that they're trying to uh trying to just just survive right and that they're kind of coexisting with these with these stragani who are also outcasts and also um downtrodden in, you know in, in their own way and and the, the the relationship between them i thought ancient blood i don't know if you ever read that that's a, that's a novel yeah. about yeah uh, i thought that we did a great job of portraying that relationship between the two and 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 portraying this Trigoy as just doing what needed to be done to survive. Yeah. And I, you know, I agree with you that it's uh, the Stragani. I've always really loved their, uh, the idea of them as like these humans that, you know, they don't, they've lost their ancestral home. They don't have it anymore. Greenskins, you know, totally wiped out Stragos um, and have maintained control of it. You know, it's descended into the marshes of madness and is even, it's just a horrible place now. Um, but these people that they have such an interesting relationship with the the vampires, uh, the Strigoi in particular, because like it's the only connection they really have left to their ancestral home in those glory days of we used to have a home, we used to have a whole empire, and now we're a nomadic people that are just trying to get by. You know, maybe one day have a home and stuff like that. And some of them are still tied to the vampires, others aren't. You know, uh, which I've always thought would be a great explanation for a player character of someone who's caught between these two worlds of do you try to let go of your ancestral heritage and just start anew, or do you lean into trying to reclaim past glories and focus on either reviving or working with a vampire, you know, regardless of what that may lead to. Cause some of the, some of the Strigoi are genuinely honorable. Some of them are insane, not necessarily evil, but they're just not, all there anymore, which uh, Age of Sigmar is kind of taken to an extreme 
And then some, of course, are the full-on like ghoul kings. Um, but I've always found that to be such a compelling idea um, that, um, like, it's like I think the only thing in fourth ed I remember about the Stragani is like they re-released "If Looks Could Kill," which has a Stragani caravan very heavily tied into its narrative. Um, but other yes. than that, it's pretty scant. Yeah, and it's uh, you know it's it's sensitive subject matter too, right? right. Uh, yeah. So you know that 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 naturally makes people you know maybe a little nervous about trying to trying to write about it you know there was some we gotta be brave <laughs> and the, yeah and the thousand thrones expansions that we never released which were only partially done there was more strigani material that i just i didn't feel like it was it was quite right it wasn't quite you know sensitive enough so we never released mm. that people emailed us and i sent it to them if they want to use it but um you have to really take a you know take a, a careful hand when you're when you're dealing with that yeah kind of stuff. and you know warhammer occupies such a unique space because it draws so much inspiration from real world history but of course that there's there's a lot of care that has to be put into that yeah you know same as writing about you know cults of slanish right if, if you really want to do it justice you have to you know really yeah choose Make, your words carefully yeah and uh you know uh, always, always be aware of what your table is comfortable with when you're telling stories. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, well, that's, that's all, um, so fascinating stuff. Uh, so, uh, just, to kind of get some more, just, uh, just cause we're running a little low on time. So just kind of cutting to some chases here, um, uh, for players that like really want to use vampires or really want to like learn more about your ideas involving vampires. Are there any particular supplements or places you would really want to direct them towards or any ideas that you could just give off the tip of your, uh, tip of your tongue, uh, for utilizing vampires in campaigns or for people that just want to study lore and really delve into it? Where, where should they look to go? Well, Night's Dark Masters for second edition is a, an amazing source book for just, you know, laying everything out there, vampire hunting, you know, all of the vampire powers, and etc. Um, I mean, you can almost play like a vampire the masquerade game using that supplement, uh, you know. Um, I mean, the thing is that, uh, you know, that, that's when, when bloodlines were a big deal. It was written in, and vampire lore has changed since then with 7th and 8th edition, so the bloodlines are kind of backgrounded yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it kind bit. of there. became less of a vampire's book and more of a von Karstein book, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah, the uh so the bloodlines don't necessarily or the blood gifts rather don't necessarily define the bloodlines. There might be, you know, one or two traits that each bloodline that sh uh, shares amongst the vampires, but um but e even so, Night's Dark Masters covered covered that even before they kind of diffused the bloodlines cuz you you know, they have uh independent vampires or something you know so you can mix and match mm. even using night's dark masters and so that's a, a great source book and then uh you know i'll just i guess uh as far as using vampires in, as nemeses in a game i thought barony of the damned for second edition did a great job yeah great book great book yeah yeah we uh, we played that and had uh you know had fun the uh the, the first vampire encounter i'm not going to spoil it but uh the first vampire encounter to me was was great because there was kind of that social and danger combat element combined together whereas you know once you get to the city and you're dealing with you know hordes of ghouls i mean there still is, is a social element but it's um it's a very different kind of vampire encounter right so mm. got uh two very different types of vampire encounters in that adventure and then you know I'll, i guess i'll plug thousand thrones uh campaign for for the vampire stuff there as well even though it was um it's kind of almost layered on after 
because Thousand Thrones was developed <laughs> yeah. it was developed alongside Night's Dark Masters. We actually had manuscripts of of Night's Dark Masters when we were writing the Thousand oh, Thrones okay. campaign. Interesting. But that wasn't the intention at first. At first, there was only one vampire in the Thousand Thrones, and then they decided, well, you know, we've got all these bloodlines. Let's try to do something more with them. So we added more vampires, and and uh, at that point, you know, they actually decided that we have to add a whole new chapter to this campaign. Mm. And that was the chapter that I was given because I meekly raised my hand and said, "Oh yeah, I've been playing undead since fourth edition fantasy battles." And <laughs> so I was I was I was picked to write that new chapter that basically lays out all this lore that you know ties all of these because what I said was you can't add, just add hundreds of vampires to a campaign about you know a crusade without it tying back to Nagash somehow, right? Right. Mm. So all of this, you know, a lot of it was kind of re repurposing you know lore that from Night's Dark Masters or even going back to, you know, because all, all that undead lore was really laid out, 90% of it, in 4th edition Fantasy Battles in 1994. It's just, you know, there were extra names were added mm -hmm. and, and so on over, over and you know, a few details changed. But Yeah, Vampire Lore's um, maintained surprisingly consistent, like, across the years. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, there have been a lot of additions and, and you know, little retcons here and there. But uh, if you go back and read the the undead fourth edition undead book, it's like, wow, okay, Queen Kalita was was back then. You think of her as being a Tomb Kings character, but no, she was referenced back in 94 mm. in the undead book. Cetera was the, as one of the statted characters, right? Um, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, Thousand Thrones, even if you just use bits of it, right, uh, you know, just... Uh, you can. It's the kind of campaign that you can say, "Ah, this chapter. I like the way vampires are used in this chapter. I'll draw. I'll throw mm. this into my campaign, even if you don't want to run it uh, as written." So, awesome. And and my last kind of big question, because uh, yeah. I inevitably I have people ask this, and I think you give some really good thoughts on it. Because second edition does provide a little bit of uh, work for this, but if there was someone who was very bold and had a very willing GM, and they wanted to play a vampire in a in a in a campaign. Do you have any kind of advice or or thoughts for those players? Um, yeah, uh, if you, I mean, if you, if you were playing just a vampire in a campaign with with regular adventurers, then uh, I think it would have to be um, it would have to be you know one of the quote good vampires like an Ulrika uh, mm. or uh, or Genevieve, yeah. Or a Genevieve type vampire that is either undercover or is working or is actively working along with them, and the players have to try to help preserve their cover because you know this vampire is an asset to the party, and um, so you know they they don't want the vampire hunters or witch hunters to discover them, and you know then the whole question is you know becomes um, you know. What what do you what do you do in, in combat situations? You know, do you fly into vampire mode or do you try to you know be a little more stealthy? Yeah, <laughs> be, be a little bit more stealthy, right? But uh, oftentimes, you know, people talk about you know, oh, you can't have this OP character in a in a you know like party balance between characters. I think is oftentimes overrated because you know yeah. if when you're playing in a, in a group a group game, you're cooperating with each other. So you know, a lot of the a lot of the powers that a vampire could have would benefit the entire party right? it wouldn't yeah well it's like if you, if you can have an elf in a party elves can get kind of crazy um vampires are not that much more crazy 
Yeah. And yeah, and 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 I think that uh, you know, in order to avoid you know spotlight hogging, you'd have to have a little bit of stuff going. Like you know, the the uh, the monsters would maybe target the vampire character more once they re- realize it's a vampire, so they're gonna they might get aggroed a bit more than the other party members, things yeah. like that. But I think I think it could work. Yeah, and I, I think I've never just... tried. I've never tried it. Uh, you know, I've only done like vampire games where everybody was a vampire for a one shot type yeah. thing. <laughs> I think what you said earlier really plays into it. Just like how, like, if you have an ogre in a party, it's just the GM really needs to take into account what are the negatives that come with that. You know, of like, you know, just like an ogre is too big to fit in a lot of small spaces and a lot of equipment doesn't fit them and stuff like that. For a vampire, like, you got to deal with what kind of weaknesses does your vampire have? Can if they can't, you know, are they do they have a bad aversion to silver? Okay, well, there's a lot of things they got to be careful of, and they've got to maintain their secrecy, or else the party could get outed and then everybody's in danger. You know, what are you going to do when you walk by mirrors? What are you going to do when, you know, it's how are you going to travel by day? If your vampire has a severe sunlight problem. Um, I think that adds in a lot of really fascinating role play opportunities. Like you might be better at fighting, but you can't afford to go all out if there are witnesses. So like, you know, you kind of got that interesting stuff there. Um, yeah. And really you know, cool. the, uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, for someone who wants to do that, read the Genevieve books, even though they're old canon and, you know, uh, you know, fourth edition has tried to reconcile a lot of that stuff with the with the newer canon, uh, which I think is great. Um, but you know, it still is old. But you know, it it does really show how a vampire works with a you know with adventuring parties of, of regular people and uh, mm. and, and cool and cool story ways. And there's even a uh, you know there was even a monastery called the Order of Eternal Night and Solace on the River Talibek, which is like a vampire monastery. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> That's with that. Awesome, yeah. Um, which uh you know we're, we're, we're quote good vampires that are they're they're just so tormented right that they just can't exist in normal society they go there uh and there's a vampire dwarf there right who's the who's the head uh head of that monastery uh honorio um so you know if i i would definitely ha- try to put that in the game if you have a if you have a good vampire it's just a place where they can go to you know for information and just to uh yeah you know, maybe, re, you know, re, regain some of their humanity or, or, or something, and you know, uh, yeah. find some kind of balance that that would, and I think that'd be a good thing for endeavors too. Of uh, like when you're doing those between adventure things, like a vampire, you know, kind of with the elf having to deal with a lot of like meditation, stuff like that, a vampire trying to really retain, not devolve and really maintain their humanity and not kind of lose sight of themselves. Um, I've always kind of liked the idea of, of, of really anything with dark magic, being like you're kind of playing with dice of dark magic is such a corruptive force. It's very easy to lose yourself to it. If you're not super careful. Um, and you know, dark elves just, or uh, vampires just kind of being loci of dark magic. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of almost, it could be very much like an addiction if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, that's awesome. Uh, we're, we're kind of coming up on time here. Um, is, is there any place? So for anyone that wants to like follow your work, uh, it feels like, I feel like every writer I've talked to for, uh, uh, Wolf Rope type stuff kind of does a lot of fans, uh, fan books that are all really amazing. Um, so when we put this episode out on the YouTube and the podcast stuff, uh, I will include links, but, uh, could you kind of let people know, uh, like where they can find you as far as like social media, or if they want to follow any of your, your fan supplements or any of your, your homebrew rules and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to pimp Libra Fanatica uh, because uh, I it's, it's the site has just d- degenerated. Uh, I've, been, <laughs> I, I keep I keep paying the, the the fee to keep it up because it's got so much content on it. But I'm long overdue for an update of that site. But uh, LibraFanatica.net 
And if you go to the uh, Apocrypha link, uh, that's where you'll find, you know, a lot of the, you know, the th like the Thousand Thrones expansions, uh, Defenders of the Forest, etc. Um, uh, but just keep in mind, that, you know, it will be updated later this year. Uh, currently, I'm just putting the final touches on a uh, Quinell uh, supplement called Tales of Quinell that um, I co-wrote with uh, a couple other, well, the Gazetteer was co-written with Stuart and Theo, and then I wrote the adventures and the other material. Awesome. Very excited for that. And you know, if you if you're interested, you know, maybe later in the year when Libra Fanatica has been uh, up, the site's been updated and Quinell's done, you know, I could do a whole other, you know, we would love just to on, do that. just on fan projects, right? But uh, so there's that, and um, um, I've all, I, I I contributed to the upcoming uh, Death Steps Light Finger Source book, which uh, I don't know the exact release time frame. That's a Cubicle Seven book. And a PDF scenario called Forest of Hate, which uh, should be out any month now. Yeah, I'm so excited for Forest of Hate. They need to hurry up and put that out. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, that basically takes uh, it's 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 like 50/50 Lorelorn Gazetteer expansion and sandbox scenario that that goes in that Gazetteer expansion. So I think that you know even if if you aren't if you aren't someone who uses scenarios, you could probably get good use out of the uh, the Gazetteer material if uh, because it it covers the Ward of Frost area between Salzenmund and, you know, kind of like the, mm. the, the area where the Nordlanders and, and Aeonir coexist, along with several other factions as well. So awesome. there's a lot of interesting uh, stuff For those asking in. for links in chat, uh, this episode will be out on YouTube in like less than a day, and I will make sure to get from uh, good old Mr. Jude here all the relevant links, and I'll have those in the description and pinned comment. So you'll be able to find that super easy. Awesome. Well, yeah. uh, I think we're pretty much out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Um, it's it's so it's it's weirdly rare to to get someone that like really enjoys talking about elves. So <laughs> really appreciate you uh, coming on because uh, I feel bad for elf fans sometimes because they uh it, it feels like they're they're a little outnumbered sometimes by dwarf fans. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and uh, discussing all these ideas. It was an absolute blast. I think everyone really loved listening uh, to it and uh, can't wait to put this out. Uh, for the wider uh, YouTube and podcast community. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Appreciate it. All right, chat. Uh, Y'all take care. Uh, that is us done for now. I will be back on later for some other stuff and uh, we'll see y'all when we see y'all. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.